Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Welcome back, and this is Ryan Tansom, your host. This is episode 183, and before I kick it into the episode, which I really enjoyed, and I'll give you a little uh, synopsis of it in a second, I have a huge favor to ask. I've been doing this podcast now for three and a half years, every Thursday, haven't missed one, and I have grown a ton as I've been doing this. I mean, if you think about it, I've interviewed 183 amazing people that have shared their wisdom and knowledge with me for free, and... As I set off to start this podcast, it was about really understanding what I wish I would have known before we sold the company, which started with Bo Burlingham talking about how so many entrepreneurs were unhappy after they sold their business. I learned a lot about valuations, different technical things and deal structures, and a lot of the intricacies of mergers and acquisitions. And as I continued to pull this thread, I realized that this is not about planning for the exit at the last minute. I mean, it is about growth. And the more you grow the value of the business intentionally, the more options you have. And as you've probably realized over the last year or so, you know, more and more of my episodes are about value growth, growing with intention, and then helping people understand where to be focusing on their business, but also learning the exit options, regardless of whether you want to sell. And the challenge that I've had, honestly, is that my title, my podcast is called Life After Business, yet the entire podcast is about business and growing your business so that way you can have the engineered life that you want, whether you own the company passively, whether you sell parts of the company and continue to run it, and really just engineering the life that you want. So as we have grown our business at Arcona, we have really come to grips with this term called intentional growth. And it's growth with value creation and the end in mind, knowing that you understand how the end results could happen, but you're building a valuable business today to create as many choices and freedom for you as a business owner as you possibly can have. So the big question that I have for you, the listeners are, if I switch the title of the podcast to intentional growth, grow the value of your business with an end in mind, 
is that going to throw you through a complete loop? I have been tried and true to life after business, even though it hasn't honestly felt right. And I haven't, I've been wearing it and the title and hasn't felt right for probably a year or so. And I've kept it the same because I wanted to be true to the listeners because we now have hundreds of thousands of downloads and, you know, thousands of listeners every single week. And I don't want to throw anybody through a loop. And I'm terrified, honestly, that I'm going to lose listeners if I change my title of the podcast. But all the topics and all the content is going to be the same. I just want to be focused on intentional growth with the end in mind. So it's about doing the things that you want today so that way you can get what you want tomorrow. So please shoot me an email. I'm going to add my calendar link in the podcast show notes. I want to know your feedback. I want to do a couple polling. I'm going to do a short little podcast uh, in between episode. Uh, that's a couple minutes, you know, polling everybody as well, because I want to give people the opportunity to give me some feedback because this is your show and I'm doing this for you, the listener. So I don't want to pull the rug out from underneath you if you have a ton of passion and loyalty to the title of the podcast. And I just want to honestly say thank you because it's like literally the funnest thing that I do every single week is get to interview people. And the fact that people tune in listening to me is just honestly kind of like a surreal dream because I enjoy it so much. And that leads us to today's guest. Today's guest name is David Tramontana, and he started a healthcare business back in the 90s and grew it from two employees up to 2,000, from $0 in revenue to $50 million in revenue. He did 14 acquisitions. He discusses his challenge in growing and how capital can, how growth consumes capital and his different experiences of bringing on investors in two different stages of the business. And we have a great dialogue about the dynamics of trying to plan for distributions for the investors while also, go, uh, while also growing. So he shares what it's like to go from a lifestyle income producing business to a growth slash income producing business to a business that is accommodating their 30% growth year over year. He shares with us how he was able to pivot his business and the strategic planning that they did to prepare themselves for the Affordable Care Act that was like a hurricane coming down their industry and could completely disrupt it. He shares how they ended up picking a strategic buyer that was a public company after going through a year's worth of due diligence with two different private equity firms, pulled the deal off the table to turn around and sell the business to a public company. And then he shares what it's like being on the selling side after acquiring 14 different companies. What I liked about this episode is he shares his insane growth and how he went through all the trials and tribulations to grow the investor stories, etc. But it really addresses the main challenge that every entrepreneur has to face at some point is do you reinvest your EBITDA to grow a valuable business or do you create your company to create distributions for yourself to have a good lifestyle? So the question to go into this episode thinking is, should you be reinvest your EBITDA to grow value long term, or do you want to create a business that has good cash flow where you can take the distributions? But at some point, you're going to be sacrificing value creation for annual distributions. It's always this give or take because growth consumes capital. At the end of the episode, if you're still challenging yourself with what should you be doing, check out one of our two-day boot camps. It's about intentional growth, how to grow the value of your business with an end in mind. We teach valuations, value growth, how to 
increase the value of your company, how all the different exit options work and how they impact valuations, your timing, your role, responsibility, and then how those different decisions you're going to have to make will impact your personal drivers. It's two days, it's five grand and 50% off for everybody afterwards. I suggest you bring your partner, your CFO, or anybody that you want and change your mindset to get what you want. So without further ado, here's my episode with David. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Good morning, David. How are you doing? Doing great. I'm excited to have you on the show. I know uh, you're like we had lunch, and uh, you hadn't been uh, you haven't told the story like on a public platform. I don't think like this, but uh, you know you you sat through uh, one of our boot camps uh, last week, and you know you've just got so many different dynamics to your story from the different exits and how you grew and. I don't know. I, I swear you could be up there uh, preaching the word at one of the boot camps just like us. So I'm excited that you're willing to share it and I will be nice. I promise. <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe for the listeners, why don't you just give us a little bit of a background on, you know, like how did you become an entrepreneur? Was it accidental? Did you just, you know, was it intentional? What was the kind of the, the catalyst? And then kind of maybe do a cliff note version of uh, how you got to where you are today. Oh, wow. That's a lot. So feel free to cut me off if I start rambling too, too much. Will, but, um, <laughs> so how I got started, was it accidental or intentional? I'd say it was both. My first opportunity um, out of college was working in the insurance and financial services field. So it was full commission, uh, but with a well-respected organization. So there I kind of learned, got the flavor for being an entrepreneur because you work independently in a collaborative environment. And then, uh, you know, I made a contact, which ultimately led to me um, starting Home Care by Blackstone with my two partners, Phil Black and Steve Stone. So, you know, I had that first experience out of college that kind of gave me the flavor, I guess, for being an entrepreneur. And I knew from then that I always wanted to have, you know, the, the opportunity that an entrepreneur has and, but also kind of the avoidance of, I guess, bureaucracy that comes with large organizations, chart my own <laughs> path, but also to make a difference in the community. Be in a field where there was what they referred to in the financial services organization as a psychic income. So I didn't want to just like, you know, set build widgets. So it was kind of three things, you know, where, where do I have an unlimited opportunity? Where can I add, you know, value to the community and um, have freedom and flexibility? So Started in the insurance field. A few years later, my friend contacted me about this opportunity where he was buying a franchise and it, it evolved over 20 years. So why don't you give uh, the audience a little bit of a rundown of what the business was that you were doing? Sure. So we were home healthcare and we were diversified. We did, um, at the time we exited in November of 2015, it was about a $50 million business. We had 2,000 employees at that time. And we were about 60% um, what they would call personal care or long-term care in home, basically home health aides helping seniors primarily with um, daily living activities. And then 40% of our business was primarily skilled in home care, nurses, therapists. And we had a tiny division that's less than 1%, maybe 1% of our business was uh, primary care at the time we exited. Um, We had nurse practitioners actually doing primary care in the home as well. So that's what we looked like at the end. At the beginning, uh, I mentioned earlier, we were a franchise. Um, one of my partners had been a franchise owner 
in the pharmacy industry and had done quite well. The other partner was a pharma rep. So they had the vision of starting a home health care business and having some synergy between home health care and the pharmacy business. And Interesting, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the commonality, the one um, gentleman decided, uh, it, the two of them were going to do this separate from me before I was even in the conversation. And then one of them got cold feet because his current career was proving some good opportunities. So he decided to stay there. And then the other gentleman who knew me said, well, let's talk to this young guy who doesn't know any better and see if we can. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> He's going to work really hard. Yeah. He's going to ask very little equity. Like, like it's going to be perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so in a handshake in uh, 90, early in 96, uh, I said, if I do good, I can get some equity, um, some sweat equity along the way. And um, that was the vision. They pitched me on buying in this franchise or starting a franchise in May of 96. We launched with two employees. And like I said, uh, 19 and a half years later, we sold it with uh, 2000. That's yeah. That, and you and I, um, cause I got, cause I know some background of the story. So I'm going to try and take it in sequential order. Cause you know, I think David, some of the, some of the main points that maybe I'll kind of just set some groundwork here and then we can kind of ebb and flow is, you know, you struggling with growth and the, how growth is expensive. I want to make sure that we touch on that because you grew so fast. And then the different kind of exits, you had different partners and capital structures and just, I mean, you got so many different angles that you went through. So maybe like, let's start with, okay, you got two employees and now mm -hmm. you're, you're the, you're the young gun with energy. How did you grow? And maybe give us some of the, the milestones and some of the challenges with the growth that you had. Sure. Again, it's easy to get lost in the, the weeds of the early years because they were so challenging. Um, oh, as a side, oh, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As a side note, and I think any entrepreneur listening to this can relate. Um, I heard this from uh, somebody I met uh, probably a year and a half ago who was an entrepreneur who built a similar but different business. He referred to the early years as dog years. I'm like, yes, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what they're like. You know, every year it feels like seven years. And when you get to be my age, <laughs> oh, it's like, got it. <laughs> I don't want to do that again. But, you know, the, the franchise or eventually went out of business. Um, and there was just, you know, a lot of debacle and craziness in the first three years. The franchise or changed hands multiple times. The balanced budget act had passed. We thought we were going to become a Medicare provider out of the gate. That totally changed our plan. We said, okay, my partners at that point in invested capital in the business. We were barely breaking even. And they're kind of like, well, you need to figure out how to make this work without Medicare. So what are you going to do? And oh, by the way, the franchisor had cash flow problems. So as the process of going from a franchisee to an independent, we had to like find a new capital structure. So we were, you know, we ended up working with a factoring company in those early years to, to, oh to get by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I said that at lunch, uh, we were factoring and you, I think we both about threw up on our table. <laughs> you know, our, outrageously expensive, but I mean, it was a valuable resource. I mean, if we didn't have it at that time, we may have closed the doors. And that can you explain? I don't know how much of that story you can explain, but I think it's very interesting because, you know, I just got done with a, a trip with 50 entrepreneurs uh, that are younger and a lot of them are, on, are hitting the Inc. 5,000 <clears throat> and growth is expensive and like it eats up cash and like it may, I don't know if like you can shed some of the light on like what you did with the factoring and how you were able to buy it out. If not, we can just keep moving. Yeah. I mean, and later in the business, the, the expensive growth was really exaggerated as we were doing acquisitions and growing organically and we were experiencing 30% growth. But in that instance, I'll elaborate a little bit. It's been a while that I can tell you what I, what I recall. I mean, in, in short, you know, there was cash flow problems in the franchisee, franchisor relationship. 
but we had a nice AR, may uh, call it $500,000. And the factoring company was willing to lend just on your AR. So they would loan us $400,000. And since the franchisor was looking to exit the franchisee business, they basically wanted you know, a financial compensation for the franchisees to be able to exit. So I went to the factoring company, got some capital, went to the franchisor, negotiated our freedom, and we were loose. And then, then it was a matter of like, okay, now what do we do? So we had to build our whole infrastructure of, you know, how are we going to do in- payroll and invoicing and, you know, policies and procedures, insurance. So um, the, the following year was really just about infrastructure and kind of stabilizing the business. And, you know, the factoring company provided immediate cash each and every week. We just said, hey, here's what we built last week. And then they would fund us a percentage of that. And then we would have to go collect it and they would take it back within 90 days if we didn't get the money. <laughs> you know, it was really, really high interest, but for a company that was like on the brink, it was, you know, huge. Uh, yeah, I will just put an exclamation point off of that last <laughs> sentence because that was a that was us. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, like I, I always said, like if you need, yeah, I mean, if you need help with your your AP and your AR, man, I'm your guy. <laughs> but yeah, like, you just gotta have it. <laughs> we we probably stayed on it too long. You know, we probably um, should have been more financially. How long were you on it? Oh God, good question. Um, at least three years. So um, we ran it for thirteen. Oh my goodness! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so, like um, on that on that question, David, like, how did you get out? Like, it's two questions. I think probably different parts of the sandwich here is one is what was fueling your growth to grow that fast, and then how did you get off of it, and then what was the next kind of pivotal point on like restructuring your your capital? So by one, we were like three million in revenue, and we were we were mixed between the personal care, home care, and temporary medical staffing, which. If you recall, that wasn't part of our service line when we sold. We were like 50-50 between staffing and uh, personal care, home care. And um, at that point, that we made it five years in business. Now we're an independent. We rebuild our infrastructure. We're still in the factoring company. And so we sat down and said, okay, we made it five years. What's our? Let's do our first strategic plan. And what do we want to do over the next you know, three to five years? And we, we agreed that our passion was home care. We weren't really excited about the staffing business. So we agreed not to exit the staffing business, not to shut it down, but just to really put our energy in growing home care. How'd you guys determine that? Um, it probably wasn't rocket science. Well, I know it wasn't rocket science. It was more <laughs> looking at a little bit of a SWOT analysis in the 2001, but the SWOT analysis really just confirmed what, because my two partners participated in this strategic planning, but they weren't active in the business. And then I had myself and I think just one of our key employees and during that time period when the Balanced Budget Act had changed our focus from growing a Medicare business to just surviving and focusing on the core business we had, we, we did good and kind of grew the staffing business and grew the personal care. So we're kind of like growing both service lines from 99 to 2001. We get to that point where now we're independent. It's like, okay, we've got to stable a business. What do we do? So we bring in the key manager, a couple partners, go off-site hire a facilitator and um, have the discussion, do the SWOT analysis. And we're like, all right, well, when we're the staffing businesses, you know, the nice thing about it is you can generate some quick revenue. The difficult thing is it's very price sensitive, mm-hmm. marketing intensive. And, you know, we just, we were okay. We, we, there were competitors that were bigger and just, you know, probably better than us. And the customers weren't necessarily loyal because it was so price sensitive and, and the staff wasn't as loyal either, but the home care just had more of a, you know, a nurturing, a good feel to it. You know, you're helping seniors age in place. Mm-hmm. The staff would come would come to home care, 
knowing that they could actually make more money working in hospitals or nursing home, but they wanted to do home care because they enjoyed one-on-one care. So, mm-hmm. you know, home care was a feel-good story. So we're like, all right, we enjoy the business. <laughs> you know, it's yep. and actually our, our biggest customer at the time paid us once a month, every month on time. Whereas that, yeah, yeah, that's no. Um, as opposed to the staffing business where I had to, to do a lot of collection work, so yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. So, that so as you so, what what fueled the growth? Because I know there was a couple different yeah. points where you were like, you know, restructuring the capital, which I think it's just the reason I'm, I'm emphasizing both the growth and the capital is because I think that's where so many people. Yep. Blindly, David, like it just to kind of set some foundation here, blindly just accept like, oh, I need private equity or I need VC or someone else that I know has an investor and they give away tranches of their company because they don't understand the options. So like, yep. what was fueling the growth and then kind of the, the back behind the, the scenes? All right. So yeah, I'll, I'll kind of accelerate the story. So we're at 01 or 3 million in revenue, kind of develop our focus of growing the home care and made another good hire the following year, somebody who actually had a good experience in the skilled home care business, but she was overseeing the non-skilled side. And we started to expand geographically. We moved from just Dayton, Ohio down to Cincinnati. And one of our major customers added a new service line. We helped them. We were very active politically advocating for funding for senior services. So a new new program Mm -hmm. expanded that helped. So we had geographic expansion. We had a, a new service line in our core business. And then we had also had this key hire who helped us eventually get into the Medicare program. So from 01 to 04, our business mix changed from 50-50 staffing home care to 100% home care. And then in 04, we added the Medicare line. So then from 04 to 07, now we're $3 million, And then we just grew organically by having the two service lines and being in two markets and providing good customer service. And we went from, call it $3 million to $10 million by the end of 07. So um, on that note, I'm just curious, when you say organically, what was there, because I got a friend that's in the similar space and he's probably listening to this. And um, sometimes it drives me nuts on how fast he gets leads. <laughs> and so like, how, where were you getting these? Was it from hospitals or like, where, like how, when you say organically, did you have salespeople? What was the, what was the revenue generating uh, machine that you had? Yeah. Um, we had a little bit of a unique niche on the, the personal care side. There's and I'll keep this simple because your audience probably isn't here just to learn about home care, but there's basically companies that market for what we call private pay within the industry. So for mm-hmm. seniors or that are paying out of pocket for their services. So there's a huge niche there. Um, and we were okay in that market, but our, our sweet spot was really some of the Medicaid long-term care subsidized programs, whether it was the state of Ohio, federal Medicaid waiver, VA program. So we were kind of good in those subsidized programs. So typically, we worked with like a group called the Area Agency on Aging. There was 12 of them in Ohio. So those were part of our big referral source. And those helped with the long-term care, personal care side of home care. And then those patients also needed the skilled care. And our competition had, you know, just was really good with um, their sales teams and going to hospitals and going to physicians and nursing homes and capturing the referrals from a, a pure sales perspective from discharge planners and social workers. So by the time we got Medicare certified, the Medicare program had changed in 01 and it had stabilized in 04, but we were kind of already behind the eight ball because everybody had these sales forces that were going after the referral sources. So rather than saying, we're going to try to compete in what, what we call the bloody ocean, we're like the blue ocean mm-hmm. for us is just capturing the skilled care for our own patients. Let's just do that. So we hired a social worker and we called her community liaison and she really, her focus was making sure that when our patients needed skilled care, we were their, we were their provider. So that proved to be 
<laughs> or hedgehog, you know, if you want to quote Jim Collins, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, everybody was going after either the private pay because and on the personal care side, because it had higher margins or they had a sales team going after the skilled because it had good margins. And we took the low margin, but steady cash flow, Medicaid business, and then coordinated their care with the skilled care. And it was an area that we didn't have a lot of competition. So it was, we were very successful in the date market and then took the business to Cincinnati and just kept going with it. Well, I think it's a, a really important note that you make there because I think there's some, some good points in there because, you know, especially like when you're, you know, you're looking at your competition and you, a lot of people do what everybody else is doing. And I, you know, you mentioned before strategic planning and I know you're a big EOS advocate as well. And I talk about that a lot. And I just, I think, what you guys, you know, came up with the Blue Ocean, which is a fantastic book, and there's just like really thinking about it intentionally. Where do you want to put your effort and energy versus just because I mean, you could have just you know done what everybody else did and then woke up you know four years later and been you know just beating the crap out of each other and having no future value. Yep. So I mean, I think it's just important that you guys intentionally did uh, did that. Well, let me get back to your capital point too, because um, so during that time period where we kind of took off from 03 through the end of 07, and we had. Somewhere early in that time period, we did manage to go to a traditional bank for financing and, and bought out our really our debt from the um, factoring company. So we were free of the high interest. We had personal guarantees, and we're with a, a, a local bank, and like you know, feeling good, and the business is growing. But to your point about the growth being expensive, now we're growing organically from three to ten million of revenue. Mm-hmm. But because that's pretty good growth, and you know, revenue's growing, profits growing, but we made the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make and distributions grew proportionally as well. <laughs> Hence, we never really paid down the debt too successfully. So here we are at 07, you know, having now hit the 10 million threshold and we still had some debt on the books, which was a shame. And I, I won't spare you the details, but we, we ended up doing an, an acquisition in 07 by accident. It was just a small one in the Cincinnati market that the opportunity just came up by almost accident. We weren't looking for it. They weren't looking to sell. It was a business that was closing and we just kind of bought the remaining assets, which was a small caregiver base and the patient base. Mm-hmm. But um, that fits so well, it made me realize, wow, we, we that, that fits into our model so good. We should just do a lot more of these. And so I, my wheel started turning and I'm just like, man, if we didn't have this debt on our balance sheet, we could grow faster. And um, I got an introduction to um, a gentleman who had a history of introducing people who had capital and people who needed capital and so we ended up at the end of 07, January 1 of 08, bringing in minority capital and sold 12% of the business. And we used that to pay off the debt and it left a little bit of dry powder in the business that we could go after further acquisitions. And then over the next three years, we had more discipline on the dis- distributions, but we went, you know, we, we basically went from 10 million to 25 million over the next three years. So, wow. it was, you know, really good growth. So, um, a couple of things, a couple of questions on that then. So, you know, when you look at the the 12% minority capital partners, so I think what there's a huge spectrum of when people bring partners in, they do this with hopes. Honestly, my dad did this when he, because I mean, he grew, which I, it's very parallel and interesting parallel stories because um, when this is before I was in the business, but when the Minnesota post office or the, I'm sorry, the United States post office. So grew from like 2 million to like 7 million. And I had to get on factoring because of that and then brought on a minority partner, but that minority partner brought in some capital and then never contributed ever again. So the whole point of doing that 
was just null and void. So like, maybe explain like, what was there terms, conditions? Like what was the, you know, understanding? Cause I'm assuming your working uh, capital was growing as you were growing your, you know, your, <clears throat> your AP and AR were growing. So how did the discussions take place and what was the assumption of 12% gets you obviously 12% of the business, you know, and you have to buy in for that to help pay off the debt, but then what came with that from their strategic influence? Yeah. I mean, other than, um, you know, giving up 12% of the equity and you know, 12% of the more S corps or 12% of any, um, distributions. We, we structured it really simple. We didn't have like different type, different share, different types of shares mm-hmm. or anything. They were just a fellow shareholder and we gave up, um, cause it was ended up being, I think a total of six individuals, but that one individual who did the fundraising from, it was, it was more like a friends and family. This wasn't a professional okay. pr- private equity, but the one guy, corralled, you know, six investors, they came up with the money and we gave him a board seat. So it was me, my two founding partners, and then this one new gentleman. Okay. So then going from 10 to 25 million, and you don't have to give too much color on this, but I think what, you know, when we talked about it in the boot camp, is there's this whole phrase that we like to bring up of solving for annual income versus solving for value creation. So -hmm. now that you have a new partner and how, and you've got a strategic plan, you're growing like crazy. Was there any kind of like shift in your mindset, David, of like, okay, at some point, this is going to be worth something, right? I mean, and then how were you balancing the annual income? So the salaries plus distributions versus and debt versus creating something that you know you could have, have options and sell at some point. Like, I, I think you can you'd explain that there, you know, there's conflict there for everybody that owns a company. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it was probably further um, complicated in our field because of the Affordable Care Act that passed in 2010. So yes, I mean, you know, my, my goal had always been to get to 10 million at one point, like when we did that first strategic plan in 01, I was like, man, that'd be amazing if we could be 10 million in revenue by 2010. And then here we are in 2010 at 25 million in revenue. So we far exceeded, you know, where I thought we could take the business already. And, you know, one of the experiences I had early in my career, and when I said I worked in the insurance and financial services, and also just life experiences growing up in a small town, I just had learned from some professionals and business owners who had good runs in whatever they were doing, whatever their career was. And, you know, the fundamental principle buy low, sell high should be true to business owners and entrepreneurs, not just your money in the stock market. And, and I saw people who didn't realize that and held on to their businesses too long. And then, you know, it maybe peaked and then, you know, here they are looking to retire and they, they can't exit their business and they're stuck with it and succession planning. So on one hand, I knew not to get too emotionally attached and that at some point, you know, you have to exercise those, um, you know, that opportunity when it comes your way. So I was always mindful of that. I mean, I, my degree was in finance, right? So in between life experiences and my education, I just kind of understood that. Um, and then here we, we'd had this growth opportunity, but you know, in 2010, I was only 40. And, um, so I was like, well, you know, certainly wasn't even thinking now, opportunities did present themselves over the years. I should back up one, one time a strategic buyer approached us in 2007 and I had just met with a, um, a broker and ironically like three to six months before we were approached by the strategic buyer. And um, I told the broker what my vision was, how I wanted to get the twenty million or whatever it was at that time. I think in two thousand and seven or eight, we had done our second strategic plan, and I was coming out of that full of energy. So I told this broker, you know, yeah, we're not interested. He was just out relationship building. Fast forward, you know, I got that strategic buyer approaching me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, 
our, somebody actually thinks our business is worth this. You know, I could exit. I could take that much off the table and then have a partner. And then there's, you know, potentially referrals. They want me to be the president of a division. So it kind of planted a, a seed in my head. And then I, I ran into this broker at a conference and I told him that I had just been approached by a strategic buyer. And he's like, well, what are you thinking? That's not consistent with your, with your, your, your goals that you just shared with me a few months ago. And it was like somebody just threw cold water in my face. I'm like, you're right. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to go to work for somebody else at this point. So that, that was a great experience because it kind of helped me consistent with what I heard at your guys' boot camp. And you guys help entrepreneurs really understand their drivers. So even though I realized it was really interesting that we were building a business that had some nice economic value, you know, my drivers were those things I had said earlier. You know, I want freedom and independence. I like the opportunity of making income, but I also want to make a difference in my community. I really don't like bureaucracy and inefficiencies. <laughs> you know, so I was like, yeah, I just, you know, buckle down. We executed the plan. But then, you know, the curveball, it's going to be unique, I think, for our, our story compared to some of your other podcasts is that, you know, being in the healthcare field, the Affordable Care Act, somebody used an analogy of a hurricane. And I think that is spot on because, you know, the, the they compared the ACA to a hurricane because like they said, you know, if you think of a tornado, if you live in the Midwest, you know, they come up out of the blue, horrific damage overnight and you, you never see them coming. Hurricanes, on the other hand, you see it out on the coast. You're watching it a week in advance on the radar. You're wondering, is it going to hit, you know, Florida? Is it going to go up to Georgia, the Carolinas? So you're always kind of watching it. And that's kind of what the ACA was to healthcare when it was passed. Everybody's like, oh gosh, you know, there's all these new regulations, changes in reimbursement, new payment models. What's this going to do? Regulations. But things were implemented so slowly. And over the years, <laughs> um, it was just kind of like, Man, molasses, you couldn't figure out what business model you wanted to be in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you knew you had to shift from volume to value. That was the whole emphasis on healthcare. We got to be a value based provider. So at that 25 million level that we reached in 2010, um, you know, I was kind of still committed for the long term and but realized now the business was even more significantly more valuable than it was just three years earlier. We, in our little simple formula, we estimated we tripled the value. So initially, we did um, a capital raise back in 07 to get that growth capital. Now we went ahead, me and one partner wanted to take some more chips off the table since we had increased the value. So we did that. But again, it wasn't to grow the business. It was just more of diversification of our assets because like most entrepreneurs, our net worth was tied up in the business. So we went to the same individual that had brought in the minority capital before. He went back to his network and raised some other capital to, to help us take some chips off the table. So that was right before all the headwinds started to come with the ACA. You know, managed Medicare uh, started to went from a, our main payer source on our high margin business, and then insurance companies started to get more market share in the Medicare Advantage space, and that changed things significantly. So you know, we had that going on, and then. Ohio had a budget deficit. There's rumors about rate cuts for the Medicaid program, and that created a lot of fear. And you know, at one point, you know, we we continued to do acquisitions along this run. And um, you know, by the time we exited, I think I told you we we overall did 14 different acquisitions. Some were great, very synergistic, and a couple we probably shouldn't have done. <laughs> um, and um, we did asset purchases, we did stock purchases, we expanded geographically, we did tuck-in acquisitions. Um, but in this period of the ACA, we, we, when Ohio was going through a budget cut, we acquired one of our largest competitors on the personal care side. And that was our biggest acquisition to date. We did traditional bank financing, had a great relationship with our bank. And then 
that that helped us kind of get through the tough times that Ohio was going through with some of the rate cuts. We picked up some more volume in our low margin business, and it helped offset the the, the rate cuts. So I want to go back back David to the um, you know as you're I mean. It's such an interesting because interesting dynamic because it's business, right? You have this hurricane potentially brewing, which you know right now. I mean, you name an industry, they've got either China issues or they've got technology issues or employment issues. I mean, it's all different things. Yeah. Yours, you know, yours was very visible, and then but you're also trying to maintain your growth, right? I mean, because you, you can't just stop. And so, you, I mean, obviously, <laughs> that 14 acquisitions and raise another round. I mean, you were very bullish but also very cautious. So. I'm curious on that round, how much did you sell of the business that time? Good question. It was 6%. Okay. So yep. then, you know, as you were going through, I'm just curious with these acquisitions, you know, you know, going through the boot camp again, whether people are buying or planning on selling, I mean, it's, it's applicable to both. And you were kind of sharing some stories about some of the uh, sellers that you had sat across from. What are some, what are a couple highlights or big learning lessons that you had from people that you were buying? Cause I, I think what's interesting is that you as a buyer were sometimes strategic, sometimes financial. So, I mean, like, so you played a different, a bunch of different roles and the deal structures were widely different between all of them. So maybe, I don't know if there's a couple main highlights that you can say, Hey, like this is what we learned that also helped you as you prepped and sold your company. Sure. Yeah. One of the, um, you know, I think a lot of us, um, who are passionate about business, like reading good business books. And I'd read some Jack Welch's stuff early on. And there's a line that resonated with me. And he talked, this is before I think we ever did an acquisition, but he said, um, there's no such things as mergers. You get acquirers and acquirees. And that, you know, his purpose in saying that is most mergers fail because people don't approach it with that attitude. You have to have a, you know, a game plan on how to integrate the business that you're acquiring. And, um, so I think when I look back at, you know, the, our track record, you know, that's spot on. I mean, the ones that went really well were small tuck-in acquisitions that were in our market where we were able to integrate them into our businesses immediately. And they provided, you know, synergy from day one. And then others we did that provided less synergy, but were more strategic. Like when we expanded to a new market, you know, we would look at, what kind of talent is it going to bring us? So, you know, if if we were going to bring, you know, new customer base, new administrative talent, you know, those were good things. So when we went to Columbus, you know, we we picked up both of those things that we got some business development talent and a new kind of a new niche. So that was that was a smart one. But um ones that didn't go so good were really integration issues. And two examples would be one was in Southwest Ohio. And even though Typically, I, when I was working with another entrepreneur, I would I would share with them the Jack Welch line, acquire or an acquiree, and you know it's going to be our way. And especially when I acquired our biggest competitor in this market, they understood the strategy and they supported it, and that's why it worked out really well. And that was like you know five or six million dollar acquisition. The one that didn't go so well was like less than a million dollar acquisition, but it was you know, from uh, an organization who. I can't, uh, it's kind of complicated, but they, I can't say they were always on board with selling, but it was a good strategic buy for us, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, it, it took about six months from the time they announced it to their employees for the time we bought it. So oh we my ended gosh. Up, yeah. So we ended up buying the business and being responsible for the patients, but we lost a lot of the staff during that transition because it wasn't handled well from the seller side. So 
you know, the integration plan has got to be, you announce it and then you start integrating <laughs> in, our, in our line where it's a service industry. You can't have that much uncertainty out there. So that was a huge um, mistake. The second kind of mistake on an acquisition would have been on the IT side. We did another acquisition where we didn't integrate their patients into our system right away. And the challenge with that was it was the largest acquisition we had done. And we are now inheriting their computer system, which didn't <laughs> interface well. It turned out it had some revenue recognition issues, which just created a lot of challenge and distraction with our with our bank and so forth. So both, you know, strategic local market acquisitions where you're grabbing market share for us were fantastic. Can, working with the sellers to understand that we're the acquirer and they're the acquiree, picking up neat, good talent and new niches that you can fit into your business model were good. Controlling the timeline and technology were the two mistakes. Oh, that's interesting. Controlling yeah, the, the in the, like on the technology too. I just uh, I thought so I I remember, I'm sorry to cut you off, but that was, so your question was, you know, yep. what that I when I was selling, you know, yep. those were things I remembered, you know, going into yep. the, the process on the other side. Which is interesting too, because like I was just talking, I just uh, was interviewing a guy about integration after the fact and how challenging that can be. <laughs> because mm-hmm. he goes, there's things that you will not figure out until after the fact. <laughs> and like I'm like, yeah, that's the truth. So then, yep. um, David, you know, you had you'd shared some stories uh, about and uh, about the distributions versus uh, investing, and I think that this is a challenge for every business owner, right? So you're going to have distributions, which is nice because you know. I think so many entrepreneurs sacrifice sacrifice lifestyle for long periods of time to to get their business off the ground to the point where they actually have a distribution. So mm-hmm. then there becomes this, okay, I like it. I definitely deserve it, which by the way, I do believe that people deserve it. And it's their choice and whether they want to take the distribution or not. Mm-hmm. However, there's a there's a give or take, right? Because by investing back into the business, you're investing in acquisitions or value creating, which we talk about a lot, which is what private equity firms do all day long, right? Because they're concerned about the value in the back end, not the lifestyle in the annual 12-month period. So like, you know, especially as if you've got investors and you've got different people and you've got different ages, I think ages also brings a different dynamic. And this is name a business. I think they go through this challenge. So how were, you know, what were the conversations like that you were having and having to, to, to balance between distributions and reinvesting in the company, especially as you've got headwinds coming at you? Yeah, you know, that's a good segue to the sale too. Cause, um, so we had been heavily a lifestyle investment early on. We brought in the minority capital and we became more financially disciplined, but less, but still somewhat of a lifestyle. We, we went from maybe being an in- income investment to a growth and in income investment. <laughs> so now we are still kicking out distributions, but we are still growing. So in the early days, we were just, you know, once we got profitable and we were no longer um, a franchise, we, you know, the revenue was relatively flat. We got profitable. We had distributions and then, and then we brought in that capital. We started executing the growth from 10 million to 25. We were you know, able to do some modest distributions and, and execute the growth strategy. And then the headwinds started to come in. And then, you know, when we did that second round um, and brought in some strategic partners as well, we had that another board member. So we created an environment where some distributions were expected. Um, so we, that was you know, an investor expectation that we had, we had to meet. As well as kind of the lifestyle for you know for some of the shareholders, so it was balancing you know whether they're individual shareholders um, or or strategic investors that had bought into our business. Now I had a much more you know by 2012, 2014, 
complicated investor shareholder partner base <laughs> that wanted a lot of people. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. People involved. So, <laughs> yep, yep. So we're dealing with the headwinds, and um, it, I, we, they they had, I guess, take away the ACA, they had reasonable expectations on distributions, but then you know all the challenges. At the point, I was thinking we really need to uh, and make an investment in one of our new service lines. We had acquired that primary care business. I wanted to invest in that further because I, I recognized our new customers, the managed care companies really found that to be an attractive service line. It was creating a lot of opportunities for us that we hadn't had before with managed care. So I wanted to invest in a, a new service line that was struggling, that was strategically important to the business. So I wanted to get new technology because we had various tech clinical platforms. I wanted an integrated one and I wanted to continue to do acquisitions. So I felt we needed to really go shift from being a growth and income investment to strictly growth. I said, the ACA is going to be crazy. Let's just focus on growth, scale back distributions to its only tax. And everybody was kind of like, well, we get the strategy, but you know, maybe you can you know, find a, a balance between just keeping them <laughs> maybe flat. Maybe you get to keep doing the distributions. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just keep, keep them flat. Just don't, don't grow them. I'm like, all right, well... You know, at the same time, um, we had, you know, reached, this is now 2014. I'm like, we'd reached a pretty good value um, compared to what we were seeing in the marketplace on multiples. I'm like, what if I can get, and I had heard a story too of um, companies in our field that had um, sold to private equity where basically the management team uh, and the, the CEO would partner with the private equity group, take some chips off the table and then roll their equity forward with a new opportunity. And that sounded intriguing to me, similar to the strategic buyer that approached me in 07. But instead of a strategic buyer coming in and telling me what to do, the private equity concept that I heard was going to be, hey, we're going to invest in you and your team and your vision, and we'll you know, buy out the shareholders, so forth. I'm like, all right, this is interesting because you know, we, we're doing all this innovative stuff and trying to serve new customers and manage care and being a value-based provider. This is an interesting opportunity. Let's, let's explore what this looks like. So then hired an investment bank to represent us, and we, we didn't... So we had learned kind of the difference between a broker and an investment bank over the years. And brokers are good for certain size companies. We'd grown to the point where we could um, you know, warrant an investment bank. The bank we chose had a lot of good um, connections in the home home care arena. And we didn't want an auction. We wanted to be very private because if it didn't, we didn't hit our number, we weren't going to sell. So we talked to seven groups, got six offers. And then we kind of did diligence on the three that were the highest. And chose one and long story short the diligence process kind of beat us up <laughs> and then um we pivoted from there and went to the one who finished at second place and said okay well we like you too um and they actually ended up you know buying the diligence material from the other one oh um, no kidding <laughs> yeah and so then we spent another few months for them then they found different reasons in the first group to drive down the value so i learned i'm like all right well the value in the loi is kind of what we wanted but the post diligence is really what we're worth. So and we had been distracted from the business because we had done the large acquisition that had the IT challenges. And now because we had the roadshow of talking, you know, to all the private equity groups and then diligence with two of them, it is almost a year of distractions. Um, so it's kind of like I got to just get off this merry-go-round. We're, we're hurting the business by being distracted. Um, we had some bad debt issues develop over that period. So I kind of walked away from the private equity opportunity in February of 15. I mean, in like, and I know <laughs> you probably summed up like I'm, I'm I'll go, I'll take one of your comments earlier. I'm assuming that 12 months was kind of like in dog years, <laughs> 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 seven years yeah. in one year. <laughs> Cause it I was mean, more like a boxer 
<laughs> well, and like you know, you would, think, you think would, of those Rocky Balboa movies where he and the <laughs> Apollo Creed go fifteen rounds. It felt more like that. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, because like you know, you had mentioned you know we had talked in the the boot camp about due diligence and like your you know the the the, the challenges going through due diligence and to how much they were pushing down the price and for various reasons. And I just think it's you know you mentioned a lot of the good important things because so many times I mean it's a second job. I mean, like literally mm-hmm. it's a second job doing what you're doing yep. while you're trying to keep the company, you know, at the, at the current growth rate. So, I mean, it's, it's super challenging. And then, you know, I don't know if you have any kind of note because I, I tell the listeners or the people in the boot camp or anybody I talk to that if you've seen one private equity firm, you've seen one private equity firm because of how different they are. I don't know if you got any comments on like strategies or like how just how their approaches were or what they wanted with the business. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I would agree with your statement. I mean, if you've seen one, you've seen one because there are there's a lot of differences. Um, you know, we were close to that fifty million in revenue threshold as we were talking to them that year, and one of the the, the only group that didn't uh, give us a bid said we were too small. They were you know focused on bigger investments. That was interesting to me, but consistent with what the investment banker had shared. And I think that's one thing I'd go back to is it's really important to get a good investment bank who knows your industry, has connections, can help you get prepared in ways you didn't know you needed to be prepared. I learned all kinds of stuff in that that cycle. Um, but as far as the private equity groups themselves, you know, in our experience, you know, we, we learned about family offices, um, where they get their money from, um, and, you know, how they're structured, what incentives that they were going to provide for the management team. I'm thinking we had one that was a, a nonprofit private equity group, or that's their money foundation. We had a family office, and we also had um, a traditional American institutions. And we had one that had money from international. So you know, a wide flavor of <laughs> groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why didn't you explain that after you got recalibrated again? What? Because I know I, I don't know how much time we got. Yeah, um, we got I, to the sale yet? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, why don't you kind of give some of the main highlights? Because I think, um, and then even afterwards, and some of the challenges that you went through. Yeah, so we we ended up selling to Almost Family, a publicly traded home care company out of Louisville, and I'd gotten to know and respect their CEO William Yarmouth. They from a distance, you know, they had built. William was an entrepreneur who started that company, and uh, before they acquired us, I believe they were in the neighborhood of five hundred and fifty million in revenue. What I knew from the distance was that they had a diversified business um, similar to ours. They did personal care and home health. They had done an acquisition into, um, uh, I don't remember the exact name, what they called it, but they were trying to be innovative, similar to us. And I'm like, okay, I like the fact that they're being innovative. They got this innovation arm, they're diversified. And then William was very politically active. You know, he'd been a big industry active um, advocate when it came to the Affordable Care Act. And then in Ohio, um, we worked together on a couple initiatives. In fact, we were kind of the co-government affairs committee, whatever award we got in, what, I think, 2014 or 15. So he had approached me previously about their buying us, and I wasn't interested in going to a strategic. And then, you know, post um, the private equity conversations, he approached me again, and I just opened up and was candid with him and said where we were at and kind of threw out a number of where it would take just to say, basically, you know, we're not interested right now. <laughs> it was my mm-hmm. message. But then he didn't back off. He said, no, I think you guys are a good fit. You're, you'd be a good leader. You could be my Ohio guy. So, you know, I had um, made some personnel changes and I, so we felt like it was a good time to have that conversation um, based upon the valuation he was considering. And six months later, I was working for him. So it went pretty quick. And then 
Then we were excited about you know taking our business model and bringing it to the strategic buyer, which was almost family, and, and roll that model out across Ohio. You know, the challenge was, you know, I think when when you go with a strategic and you are demanding your price, like we did, you know, then you got to deliver and deliver quick. So I think, you know, you know, that's what I like about your boot camp. Um, I think you guys did a good job helping entrepreneurs understand what are your drivers and where the different buyer types look like, because it, it makes complete sense. And you know, in retrospect, but as you're going through it, you know, we were. You know, six or nine months into the acquisition, and I inherited a larger older, their, their group in Ohio. Once we started having to make some um, tough personnel decisions, we we knew there was going to be synergies, right? I mean, we expect that when you there's an acquisition. We'd been on the other side, and it had done a lot of that over the years, and so we we anticipated it. But it was just kind of the I guess I would say maybe abruptness and the quarterly pressure that was a little bit of a um, a stunner. And then the technology, you know, we were trying to build out a new technology platform. We had to challenge that and we had to go on their legacy platform. So there were some things that just kind of, um, it was really, they, they did a lot of things great, way better than us. But at the same time, you know, as the entrepreneur who's used to kind of a, a certain culture, trying to integrate that culture, because again, now I, I had been the acquirer many times, now I was the acquiree. You know, I found myself trying to be the culture, you know, guy, you know, trying to keep the morale up. And it was, it was difficult. Well, and I think in that note, one major thing that we talk about in the boot camp, or like anybody that's thinking about this, on and the fact that you already acquired fourteen companies, so like you were no um, amateur to this, and you still like you know even to go back to Jack Welch's comment is there is no merger is yep. especially in in uh, strategics versus private equity because private equity needs to make a return on the investment. There is strategic purposes behind some roll ups, but like Absolutely. in the strategic there's certain things that they're going to want to do with your business. And like, you, like it just takes, I, I don't know if you'll ever fully understand their side of what they plan to do with your company because it's no longer yours, right? right. And, and especially the fact that you're, it was a public company. So it's, I, I mean, I just, I don't know. Was there anything, you know, you had mentioned, so there's the, there's the intention of what's going to happen afterwards because of what they've said, why they want to buy you. But what were some of the challenges you, I think you had mentioned like their performa was relying, you know, cause it's a public company, right? So like their performa was relying on some of the things that you guys were talking about. And like, I just explain maybe kind of the integration and like how, like how the intentions might have, you know, been off from what, what reality was. You know, um, uh, that could take us another hour. So I'm just going to give you a real simple <laughs> answer. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, you know, we had done a pro forma of what the merged businesses would look like in Ohio and um, delivered that product and said, here's what I think I can do, you know, if I'm, you know, the division. And then I think that was like, okay, great. If we can do that, then we can justify, you know, paying this price and, and bring that asset in. But I don't think we really discussed when we could do it. You know, <laughs> um, if, to me, it probably would have been a three-year project, but I, um, you know, I think we need to deliver those results quicker. So I think when you're not delivering the the synergistic growth that you expect quick enough to justify the value that you got, then you have to go look at the cost side. So, you know, ultimately it's, you know, it's a formula and you got to deliver to your shareholders. And if we weren't getting the top line growth, in fact, if we were going the other direction, then you got to make some tough decisions. And that was probably part of the complication that I understood, but it just was a whirlwind that I wasn't used to. And, you know, my team certainly wasn't used to it. And it is, a, I think there's this whole balance of like, you guys are playing the long game value creation, but then all of a sudden you have 90 day gates that you have to hit. I mean, was there an interesting dynamic of all of a sudden seeing how short-sighted public companies are? 
For sure. For sure. So, you know, let me kind of accelerate the story too then, because I spent three and a half years um, in the, within the public environment. And then what I did learn, it was to your point about the strategic nature, you know, they had acquired us and then did, they had acquired a few companies before us. They'd acquired a company in New York um, and then a big company down South. And so they were really doing, even as a public company, a pretty significant roll up. And then they did a large joint venture. And then, then all of a sudden, almost family, two, two years into the um, acquisition, they were acquired by LHC Group. Um, hmm. It was announced as a merger um, with LHC. And um, it took a few months for that to integrate. I had a three-year commitment with my um, contract. Again, just kind of another consideration for an entrepreneur when you're selling. You know, I had a three-year employment agreement with Almost Family. But then when LHC came on board, I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. You know, new organization, new strategy. So ended up Staying three and a half years total post sale, um, I moved into a new role with LHC. Um, but then, you know, we kind of mutually agreed um, last year it was time to move on. So since then, I've been out on my own. But then it was amazing though, because when those two companies came together, at first I was like, why are those two public companies merging? But then as I understood their strategy, I'm like, well, it makes total sense, you know, based upon the geographic coverage they have, complementary service lines. And you know, from a from a shareholder because I had rolled some stock into it, they've done fantastic. So, um, you know, it's those things as an entrepreneur. I mean, it, I think all those options are good options. Like you said earlier, it's just business. I mean, um, and you really got to get your head around. And, and I, even though I said I would had separated, you know, kind of the emotion from the business, you know, you can't do that entirely. But um, understanding and far enough in advance. Um, and, and then making a plan. What are your drivers? Like you guys educate. And then what are those options? And understand the pros and cons of each. It's just infinitely valuable. Well, and, and the point that you made, because I think you, like you said that you're, you're, you were trying to make it just financial because it's just business, but then you had realized that it is emotional too, especially as if you're dealing with employee and turnover and stuff like that. How do you, you know, is there a way to reconcile those two? I mean, like if there's anything that you would suggest for someone that wants to optimize both of those, how would, you know, what, what, what uh, feedback would you give? Um, (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I think in some ways we we did do that, you know, whether it's incentives you have for your team through a deal, um, negotiate post deal. If you're selling, um, have the wherewithal to set aside severance dollars. You know, we did that. Um, the, the buyer actually had severance as well. So some of the employees got really good severances. So, and, and then you got to look at your getting alignment, if, especially if you're an organization that has multiple partners um, is, is, is key and doing it early is key. And that's probably one of the areas. I mean, again, I, I said it a few times, the ACA certainly created unique challenges for our field. Um, but um you know, as you had, you know, talked about it, that you were really financially like the goal is that you were to try and keep it separate because business is business. But then over the course of, you know, acquiring 14 companies and working with your employees, and also I know you and you're a good indiv- individual is, you know, it's, it's hard to separate the motion and the financials and how to like, you know, if there's any kind of feedback or one takeaway, the, the last takeaway of how to balance both the, the financials, but then also your personal drivers in like, how, how do you balance that? and and what suggestions would you have for someone that hasn't gone through this yet? Cool. Um, how you balance it. I mean, um, getting the right advisors and, and making sure you vet 
all the different options and understand there's given there's pros and cons in, with each. Like, I mean, the private equity was attractive, and I and I know some people who have done fantastic with private equity. So even though the diligence experience was tough on me, you know, I, I know of, of two people who have just done phenomenal. You know, they had a clear strategy. Um, they invested in some capital, co-invested with the private equity group, and they they hit not even a home run, but grand slams. So I mean. PE can be a wonderful partner and strategic buyers can be great too. I mean, especially, you know, with the ACA, um, everybody's looking at a clinical integrated network. Insurance companies are buying providers. Providers are becoming insurance companies. So strategic sales made a ton of sense in healthcare. So it's, it's really just trying to build alignment with all your stakeholders, right? Stakeholders are your employees as well as your owners and equity team, but also your advisors and, you know, having a group, like you, who can educate people of everything is nice. Because, I mean, we had some great advisors in all the different times. I think for most of the decisions I made, given the cards I had at the time, we probably made the right decision. But, um, you know, more education, you know, nine years ago, 10 years ago, maybe things would have been different. But it's so hard to play Monday morning quarterback because, you know, you can only play with the cards you're dealt in any given hand, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, the key is, you know, education and alignment with stakeholders. So if there's uh, someone, why don't, you, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of an overview of what you're doing now? Because I think you're also helping people uh, get what they want as well um, on the numbers and some of the U.S. material and the, the different things you're doing now. And what's the best place to get in touch with you? Yeah, um, sure. Um, now, um, I've joined an organization called Focus CFO. So what we do is work with um, small business, small and medium-sized businesses. We Everything from pre-revenue to $100 million, but our, really our sweet spot is kind of like the 2 to $20 million. So most companies that can't afford or don't need a full-time CFO, we provide that service on a fractional basis. So it's fantastic because you know as we are going through the growth challenges, um, there's so many mistakes and, and successes we had along the way. So now what I'm able to do is you know, um, help other entrepreneurs by sharing my experiences and provide them with experienced CFOs on a part-time basis who can help them plan for the future. So I'm excited to be part of this group and, and hopefully help others from some of my experiences and with, with better tools that we had didn't know that were out there. What's the, what's the best place to get in touch with you? Uh, you can email me at dtraumatana, that's T-R-A, Montana, at focuscfo.com. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, I enjoy it. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Ryan. I hope you learned a lot from that episode. I thought it was really important to be addressing the capital constraints that growth has. And if there's one big thing that I want you to take away from this is don't just go grab an investor or grab a private equity firm because you can't afford to grow. Sit down, build a plan, understand your finances, understand your value drivers, understand what you want before you go get in bed with a relationship or a partnership that you can't get out of because you now have a completely different dynamic. Everybody's got different motives and you want to make sure that you intentionally get what you want. That's why I suggest you take a look at one of our two-day boot camps. You'll learn how all this stuff works. You'll learn valuations, value drivers, when and how you should be investing your EBITDA, how the different exit options work so you can understand what you're finally marching towards. Again, two days and it's five grand, 50% off of everybody after that that you bring. Reach out to me if you got questions on the curriculum. We use two case studies to show what they do in order to grow the value of the business to get what they want. 
And again, reach out to me if you got some feedback on the title of the podcast, because again, I'm looking to see if we should change the title to intentional growth, grow the value of your business with an end in mind. Scary, but I'm also looking for feedback because I'm willing to be open-minded about the topic. So with that being said, I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will talk to you next week. 